Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. I have not taught on this publicly in years, but this is on my heart tonight, so I'm going to do it. And I understand that Pastor Mark has been covering some of these verses. And so I'm just going to touch briefly on a little bit of it, then we're going to move on to what's really on my heart. But Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for this wonderful time we've had in your presence tonight. We thank you that people who came in here broken are going to leave whole. People who came in here down are going to leave up. We declare that. We thank you for that. And Holy Spirit, we look to you tonight as the great teacher. And we ask you to open the scriptures to us. Take us into them. Let us experience them. Let us feel them. Let us be transformed by them. And Holy Spirit, you're the one that authored this word You're really the only one with the authority to teach it. So we ask you today to speak through us, speak to me, speak to everyone in this place, transform each one of us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 10. All right, can somebody help me pull one of these out of the box? That would be great. Just give me that black one. That would be a blessing. All right, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. And he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. But notice he begins in verse 10 with the word finally. The word finally in Greek is toilopon. It can be translated finally, but in fact, the real meaning of this word in this text is now finally to the last and most important matter at hand. It's almost like Paul has saved his most important subject to the end of the book, and that is amazing because the book of Ephesians is a highly theological book filled with things we all need to know. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about election. He talks about predestination. He talks about the sealing of the Spirit, the exaltation of Jesus. In chapter 2, he talks about the grace of God and the church. In chapter 3, he talks about the eternal plan of God. In chapter 4, he talks about five-fold ministry. In chapter 5, he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit and describes the relationship between husbands and wives. In chapter 6, he describes the relationship between parents and children and masters and slaves. All of this is profoundly important. But now when you come to chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, Toy Lopan, it is almost the equivalent of saying now, if you're not going to remember anything else I have said to you in this epistle, here's what I've saved till last. Finally, to the last and most important matter at hand. And then he begins these verses on spiritual warfare and spiritual armor, which your pastor has been covering in these services. But notice he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. The word strong is the Greek word enduo. The word enduo is where we get the word for an endowment. It's a very important word. It's a compound of two Greek words, the word en and the word duo. The word en means in as to place something inside a vessel or a receptacle. The word duo is for the word power, but when you put the two words together, it describes a power which is designed in duo to be placed inside some kind of a vessel or inside some kind of receptacle. And now we find that we have been specially fashioned by God as a vessel or a receptacle for the power of God to be placed into. God has fashioned us to be the container of his power. And you can find an example of this word in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Just write that down where Jesus speaks to his disciples about the baptism and the Holy Spirit. And he said to his disciples, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued. Everybody say endued. That's the same Greek word until you be endued with power from on high. But notice in Luke 24, 49, Jesus said, behold. He begins with this wonderful word, behold, which in Greek is the word edu. The word edu carries an idea of shock, amazement, bewilderment, the inability to really express what you feel because what you're describing is so magnificent. And what it really means is the verse could be translated like this. Now, here Jesus, 
is gathered with his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples for the last time. He says, behold, that's the King James Version, that a better translation would be, wow, 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 wait until you hear what I'm about to tell you, which means Jesus was really excited about what he was about to say. And when he said, behold, he was injecting his own personal sentiment into what he was about to say. When you see this word behold, you got to really grab hold of your seat because Jesus is about to say something really significant. For example, in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, when Jesus said, behold, I give you power over all the works of the enemy, it's the same word. Jesus got so excited about what he was about to tell the disciples. He said, whoa, listen to this. This leaves me speechless. Wow, I'm about to give you power over all the works of the enemy. Every time you see that word behold, Another example is in Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus said, go into all the world, teach all nations, he gave the great commission. And finally, you come to the verse which says, and behold, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Ah, that word behold is so very important. First of all, this was a conditional promise, which means if you go into all the world, if you teach all nations, if you do what I just said, Wow, will my power and my presence ever be with you all the way to the end of the age? Which means it's God's promise to those who fulfill the Great Commission. And so if you want to have power in your life, you've got to be involved in the Great Commission because God's power shows up in the lives of those who go or those who help others to go. It's the guarantee of God's personal presence. And Jesus was so excited, he used the word behold. But now, in Luke 24, 49, Jesus is describing the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Well, the disciples had just been saved. You can read that in John chapter 20. When Jesus came into the upper room where they were gathered together, and Jesus said, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. And the Bible says that he breathed on them. The Greek word emphuseo, he breathed on them and said, receive, the Greek word labete, which means take it, receive it right now in this very moment. Receive right now in this very moment the Holy Spirit. He breathed into them is actually what the Greek says and says, right now, take it, take the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, the first people were born again under the conditions of the new covenant. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit didn't just abide upon the disciples, but the Holy Spirit literally came into their hearts. And what is amazing, that word breathe into is the same word which we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when the Bible says God breathed into the nostrils of Adam. He breathed into. He didn't just breathe on Adam. He literally breathed into his nostrils. His lungs received the breath of God and bam, his heart started beating. His lungs were filled. He began to breathe as he was filled with the life of God. He received it in that moment. That same word now is used in John chapter 20 when Jesus breathed, infuseo. The Greek actually says, breathed into them and said, receive, take it right now. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit entered into them and they began to live and breathe as the first people ever born again. And Peace always accompanies salvation. That's why Jesus said, peace be unto you. And he breathed into them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I grew up in a particular denomination where we preached salvation. We were saved. We knew we were saved. We had peace, but we had no power. We were the most peaceful, powerless people you'd ever seen in your life. We knew we were going to heaven, but we didn't know how to use authority. We did not know how to walk in power, but by golly, we had peace with God. We knew we were going to heaven, but we did not have peace. And that's because we had not received the second work of grace, which God wants to perform in every person's life. And that is the endowment of the Spirit. So days after Jesus has breathed into the apostles, 
They've been saved. They've received the Holy Spirit. Now, days and days and days and days pass. Jesus meets them on the mountain and says, we're not done yet. Behold, wow, wait till you hear this. Now, I want you to go to Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father, which I've told you about. For in not many days from now, you will be endued with power from on high. This Greek word, enduo. It was the equivalent of saying, hey, boys, there's another work that God wants to do in your life. In duo, you've been fashioned as a receptacle to receive divine power. And God, in, he wants to put this duo inside you. He wants to change you and endue you. And in fact, the word in duo was such a well-known word in classical Greek that it described men like Hercules, individuals who received a touch of the gods. And when they received the touch of the gods, they were transformed to do what they previously could not do. They had strength, which they previously did not possess. That's how that word in duo is used. Now it is used by Jesus. It is used by Paul to tell us that when we receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which really is what Paul describes in this verse, we receive a power that transforms us. And just like peace comes with salvation, power comes with the endowment of the Holy Spirit. And it supercharges us to do what we could never do before. But then this verse goes on to say, finally, my brethren, be strong. What? In the Lord. This is called the locative case. This is very important because it tells us the power which we're describing is locked up in the person of Jesus Christ, it is in the Lord. And this is really good news. Because according to Ephesians chapter 1, we're told seven times that we are in Christ. We're locked up in the person of Christ. We are eternally in the place of Christ. We've been baptized by the Spirit into Christ. That is the place of our habitation. And in him, in Christ, is also the power of God, which means whether we realize it or not, we're rubbing elbows with this divine power all the time. And it's not difficult to receive. You just have to open up and embrace it because it is as close as your next breath. We are literally walking in divine power whether we realize it or not. I remember once many years ago, Denise and I were ministering in a Pentecostal denominational church. Oh, I was so excited because it was our biggest meeting up until that time. Wow. I didn't realize how traditional it was. Well, we came to the end of the service, and I gave an invitation for people to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I was shocked at the numbers of people that came forward. There must have been 50 or maybe even 70 people that lined up all the way across the front of the auditorium. I thought, how is this possible? This is a traditional Pentecostal church. I wondered, why have these people not already received the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Then the pastor came forward and said, brother, I'll take it from here. And I watched. He said, now we're just going to tarry. Some of you will receive it and some of you won't. Some of you have been waiting 40 and 50 years, but one of these days, your day will come. And I watched such a wonderful work of God's grace be turned into a disgusting work of the flesh as people were nearly beating themselves to make them worthy enough to receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. My friends, you're not worthy enough to be saved. You're not worthy enough to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Just get over that and just take it by grace. And God has made this so easy for us. He's placed us in Christ. The power is in Christ, which means you don't have to plead. You don't have to beg. You just need to embrace and receive. And when you receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit, it literally transforms you. When I was filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you my testimony tonight. It totally changed me. It was like Kent Clark went into the phone book and came out Superman. I was literally completely transformed with one infilling of the Holy Spirit. It changed me. The Rick Renner that you see today would not be standing here if I had not received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go on. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, be endued in the Lord, and in the what? The power of his might. Well, what's the difference between power and might? 
The word power is the Greek word kratos. The word might is the Greek word iskuos. The word power, the Greek word kratos, K-R-A-T-O-S, describes what I would call eruptive or demonstrated power. This is power that you can feel. This is power that you can see. For example, the power that raised Jesus from the dead was Kratos power. You didn't just intellectually believe in it. If you had been there that day, you would have felt the earth tremble as the power of God was erupted. That was the Kratos power of God. This is felt power. This is the power of signs and wonders which is available to operate through any believer filled with the Holy Spirit. But now why are we able to move in signs and wonders? That leads us to the word might. The word might is the Greek word iskuos. Denise, can you please bring me a Kleenex? Thank you. The word iskuos means mighty. In particularly, it describes a mighty man or a man that is muscular. We would say a person that is muscle-bound. Well, wait, whose might are we talking about? Be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. It's displaying here God as being muscular and mighty. Well, how many muscles do you think God has? I always say that if the spirit realm was pulled back and we could see the right arm of God, we would all say that God is the one true Mr. Universe. There's no one with muscles like God. His muscular ability is so amazing that with just merely flexing his arm, he parted the Red Sea. Just flexing his arm, he raised Jesus from the dead. And when you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Spirit, somehow it connects you to the muscular ability of God so that when you as a mere human being pray in the name of Jesus, God moves his arm and power is released and Kratos happens right in front of your eyes. It's demonstrated right in front of you. All of that is available to anyone who has received the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But then you come to verse 11. And verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And there's something very interesting here which you cannot see if you're reading the King James Version. In verse 11, the first two words, King James put on. Guess what? In Greek, the words put on are the very same word in Greek which in verse 10 is translated be strong. It is again the Greek word in duo. The word be strong and the words put on are the very same words in Greek. It is the word in duo, which means, how do you put on the whole armor of God? All right. There are some who say that when you get up in the morning, you should go through these gyrations where you say, okay, I'm going to put on my helmet of salvation. There are people acting like they're putting on a helmet. Okay, I'm going to put on my breastplate of righteousness. And they go through all these things and enumerate what they're putting on, and somehow that's an aid to their faith. But let me ask you, do you really think moving your hands and acting like you're putting on a helmet, doing all these things, do you really think it puts anything on you? No. Of course not. Then how do you put on the whole armor of God? Well, the answer's in the two words, put on. It's the word in duo, which means when the power of God hits us, the power of God is what dresses us. When that power comes on us in duo, that endowment, it is the power of God that puts a helmet on our head. It is the power of God which puts a breastplate on our chest. It is the power of God which puts a shield in our hands, a sword in the other hands, a loin belt of truth. It gives us greaves and shoes of peace. It is the power of God. When it touches us, it hits the top of our head and literally dresses us in the whole armor of God. And we have a biblical example of this. Jesus lived in Nazareth all of his young life. But all the time he lived in Nazareth, there was never a demonic manifestation when he walked down the street. Not one time. But when Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit at the River Jordan, then later came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit, he came home. He came home to Nazareth to his very same hometown where he had lived all of his life. But now something had radically changed. Because demons were coming out of the woodwork screaming, Ah, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. They were tormented by his very presence. 
Yet his hair, his clothes, outwardly, everything looked exactly the same. Why were they recognizing him now? Because he had received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the baptism of the Holy Ghost had dressed him in the whole armor of God. And now when Jesus came walking through the streets of Nazareth, spirits could see in the spirit realm and this no longer looked like the man they had seen all their life. It looked like a mighty warrior who was walking through the streets of Nazareth. He had been transformed. The power of God outfitted him. Now it's very important that we begin this text with the power of God because... Verse 11 goes on to say, put on the what? Whole armor of God. Whole armor, the Greek word panoplion. You can read in this chapter, there are seven pieces of weaponry. When you first read it, you're going to think there's just six, but there's really seven. Let's look at them. First of all, there is your loins girt about with truth, your breastplate, which is a breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I call these killer shoes. I'm sure Pastor Mark has already covered that. Taking the shield of faith, there's your shield. Taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, if you stop there, you have six pieces of weaponry. It's incomplete. And yet this verse says, we're to take the whole armor of God and there's one piece missing. A typical Roman soldier who was in the infantry had seven pieces of weaponry, including all which we have read, but in addition, <clears throat> he carried a lance. So where is the lance? Well, the lance is actually in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. I call this the lance of intercession. Which means if you know how to use your prayers correctly, you can hit the enemy from a distance with your prayers so you never have to have upfront combat. You can hit him at a distance. So all pieces of weaponry are here. But on the average Roman soldier, these pieces of weaponry weighed in excess of 70 pounds. 70 pounds. Now, Let's just ask, what would happen if suddenly I loaded you with an additional 70 pounds and told you to get up and run around the room? Most people would have a struggle running around the room with an excess of 70 more pounds to carry at the same time, which means you can't really even get into the subject of spiritual warfare until you begin with the issue of power because you've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit to carry the weaponry which God wants to give you. It is futile to try to enter into spiritual weaponry without the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is why this text begins with the power of God. You, got, you can't get the cart before the horse. You've got to receive power to carry this weaponry. And Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that... In Greek, this is hoti. It's a pointer word. In order that, it's very specific, you may be able. In Greek, it is the word dunitas. It's from the dun word dunamis. The word dunamis means what? Can anybody tell me? Power. What else does it mean? I was waiting for that dynamite. That's what most people say. But in fact, the word dunamis, which describes the power of the Holy Spirit could describe unparalleled explosive power, but commonly the word dunamis was used to describe a force of nature, like an earthquake or a tornado or a hurricane. It was commonly used by the Romans to describe the full might of the advancing Roman army, which was irresistible. So when we talk about the word dunamis, and you moving in the dunamis power of God. We're talking about a divine power which makes you like a spiritual force of nature. When God's power is working in you like an earthquake, you have the ability to really shake things up. When the power of God's working in you, you're like a tornado with the ability just to blow things out of the way. You're like a divine hurricane with the ability to absolutely remove the work of the enemy. And not only that, even if it's just you by yourself and dunamis power is working in you, you have within you the greater one and you become like a single man army with the power to advance and to take territory. That's what the power of God does in us. 
Do you see how vital it is that we receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit? And here he says, put on, endure, let the power of God hit you. It will immediately begin to clothe you with the whole armor, all seven pieces of God, in order that you may charge or storm against the wiles of the devil. And here it is the word stand. But the word stand is the Greek word stainite. It's not a picture cowering in fear. He's standing with his shoulders thrown back. His head is held high, which means when you have received the power of God, you're in a position to look the devil face to face. And that's why it goes on to say that you may stand against. The word against is the Greek word pros. The word pros means face to face. You're not in retreat. You're coming against him. And the Bible says that if you will resist him, he will flee from you. As long as you run from him, he's going to keep chasing you. But when you receive the power of God, you're in a position to be very confrontive with the wiles of the devil. And now we get to the point of my message. The wiles of the devil. What are the wiles of the devil? You know, when I was growing up, we didn't take the devil very seriously. We were in a denomination where if anybody talked about the devil, we thought they needed psychiatric help. And we thought the devil was a joke. So in our home, we played with things we shouldn't have played with. We played with Ouija boards because we just thought it was a game. My parents let me watch all kinds of horror movies. <laughs> the Thing. How many of you remember watching The Thing? I can remember watching The Thing when I was a child. And there was another movie we watched about this hand that had been dismembered from somebody. And it would crawl during the night, just a disconnected hand. And it would crawl up into people's beds and would strangle them to death. And I remember as a child, the picture of that hand so terrified me that during baptismal services in our church and they would turn the lights off, I would put my feet on the pew in front of me because I didn't want the thing to crawl up my legs and then find me dead after the baptismal service. Those things were just in my mind. And to me, the wiles of the devil was something in the closet or something under the bed or something hiding in the shadows. What is the wiles of the devil? How many of you would like to know? All right, get out a piece of paper and get ready to write. I'm going to give you five important words, five important words, and I've asked for the whiteboard. First of all, word number one, and if you understand these five words, you will understand almost everything about how the devil works in a person's life. First of all, we come to the name devil. Write that down, devil. Number two, the word wiles, wiles. Number three, the word devices, devices. Number four, the word stronghold. I'm going to go over all these with you, the word stronghold. And finally, number five, the word oppression. If you understand these five words and how they work together, you will understand how the devil works in the life of a person, and I'm going to give you a personal illustration to demonstrate this. But let's begin with the word devil and wiles. Because it says here in Ephesians 6.11 that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So in Ephesians 6.11, we find the word devil and we find the word wiles. Well, let's begin with the word devil. The word devil in Greek is the word diabolos. It's spelled like this in Greek. It's a compound of two words, the word dia and the word balos. The word balos is from the word balo. It means to throw something like a ball or to throw something like a rock. But when you connect it to the prefix dia, it means to throw and throw and throw and throw until finally you break through and dia, penetrate. Because the word dia carries the idea of penetration. To penetrate a thing from one side all the way to the other side. And what we find then is that the name devil is not really a name. It is a job description. 
It describes what he does. He's one who comes with lies, with slanders, with imaginations, vain imaginations, and like a ball or a rock, he begins pounding, throwing once and again and again and again and again and does not stop until dia he penetrates and his intention is to penetrate the thing from one side all the way to the other. And you're going to find out in a moment what he wants to penetrate is the mind. Because the devil knows if he can control your mind, he'll have you. The mind is the central control center for a person's life. Somebody might say, no, 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 no. It is my spirit that is my central control center. Well, let me tell you, your body, soul, and spirit... And between your spirit and your body is something called the mind. And your mind determines which part of you is going to rule. Your mind can decide to walk in the spirit. Your mind can decide to walk in the flesh. Your mind is the controlling factor. And whoever controls your mind will determine whether you experience joy or a lack of joy, whether you have peace or a lack of peace, victory or a lack of victory. And the devil is after your mind and diabolos. He comes to pound the mind and pound the mind and pound the mind until he penetrates. Then we come to the second word, the word wiles, which also is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. And in Greek, it is the word methodias. Methodia. From the word meta, which means with, and a form of the word hodas, which is the word for a road. So if you put the two words together, the word which in the King James Version is translated wiles, the Greek word methodia, actually describes one who operates on a road or he operates on a lane or on an avenue. Which means the devil is not just randomly trying to get somewhere. He has a sense of direction. Just like roads take you somewhere, the devil is traveling on a specific road. He's very targeted in where he is headed. He knows exactly where he wants to go and what he wants to do when he gets there. And that leads us to the next word, the word devices. And you can find this word in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Write that down. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, where the apostle Paul writes, We are not ignorant of... Can anybody tell me? Satan's devices. And the word devices is the Greek word noemata. It is a derivative of the word noose. The word noose is the word for the mind. Now we have a confirmation of where the devil is headed. He's headed to the mind. He knows if he can capture your mind, and fill your mind with vain imaginations. He can affect how you feel. He can affect how you feel about yourself. He can affect your self-image. If he can affect your self-image, he will affect how you project yourself to others, how others feel about you. And in fact, if he can affect your mind, he can control everything about your life. And this is the same reason why God wants your mind. It's why we have to renew our mind to the truth. Because if God has our mind, God will rule our life. Whoever controls our mind controls us. And that is why we need to be so very careful about what is going on in the public education system in the United States today. They are after the minds of children because they know if they can control the mind, they can control the destiny of the nation. And just let me throw something in here that has nothing to do with the message. You know, Denise and I live in the former Soviet Union. We know a lot of history about Russia. We know a lot of history about socialism and communism, a lot. We live in Moscow. When the Bolshevik Revolution took place, and really it was just about finished by 1918, by that time the Tsar and his family had been terribly murdered in Ekaterinburg. Lenin came to power, him and his hooligans. Lenin was married to a woman named Krupskaya. How would you like to be married to a woman named Krupskaya? She was a lesbian. And she lived with a woman while she was married to Lenin. But she was brilliant. And she said, the only way we're going to change the history of Russia is if we get the minds of the children. 
and Krupskaya was placed in charge of the educational systems of the newly emerging Soviet Union. She trashed all the old history, discarded the history, and began to fashion a brand new educational system. And guess what? There were certain terms they were no longer able to use anymore. They were outlawed. They were banned. And they introduced all kinds of new language. Does it sound familiar? My friends, woke is nothing new. I can take you to the Soviet Union and I can show you the devil has always been after the minds of the young. And they knew the only way they would form a new godless society, an atheistic society, is if they could seize the minds of the young. The devil's always been after the mind. And God has always been after our minds. But now we find the devil is headed toward the noose. That's the word for the mind, the intellect. But when the word noose becomes the word noemata, it is translated as the word devices, which describes a mind that is now so confused. It is so confused. It can no longer think right. I call it scrambled brains. The enemy has just attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked. That's the word diabolos. He is hit the mind and hit the mind and hit the mind until finally he has penetrated. When he has found a penetration into the mind, then he has an open road into the mind. And once he has the open road into the mind, devices, noemata from noose, he begins to bombard that mind and fill it with all kinds of confusion until that person doesn't know whether he is a boy or a girl or a girl or a boy, or he doesn't know whether he's a success or a failure. His mind is just so confused. Because now there's an avenue right into his head. This leads us to the next word. The word stronghold, which in Greek is the word ukaroma. And you find this word in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in just a moment, I'm going to show you how all these words work together. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, please go there in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Here again, we have weapons, but are what? Mighty, explosively powerful through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That's this word, ukarama. This word, ukarama, which here is translated as the word stronghold, has two meanings, and both of them are correct. First of all, The word ukaroma, which here is translated as stronghold, was the Greek word used in the first century to describe a massive, massive castle with very, very tall walls. You could translate it as a fortress. What is the purpose of those walls? To keep outsiders on the outside so they can't get in. But this word stronghold, the Greek word ukaroma, is also the word which was used in the first century to describe Prisons. A prison has the opposite purpose of a fortress. A fortress is designed to keep outsiders on the outside, but a prison is designed to keep a prisoner on the inside. He's behind bars. And now we have an amazing revelation that when a person's mind has been penetrated, and noemata, their brain begins to be confused. Devices begin to take place in their head. Their mind is scrambled, and they can no longer determine what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. They're hearing voices speak to them, lamb-blasting them all the time, all the time. If they listen to it long enough, it will become a reality to them. That lie will become truth. What you listen to, becomes your reality. Now, for example, it's a person who has loads of talent, loads of gifts, so much potential, but the enemy has been speaking and speaking and speaking, saying you're less than others, you have no abilities, you'll never be anything, and this person has heard that voice speaking to them regularly, lamb-blasting their mind and their emotions for years and years until now. They've embraced it. Even though they have more talent than others, they really believe they don't have much ability. And when others speak to them and say, 
Listen, it's not true. It's like those that are trying to offer help can't break through to them because they're enslaved inside a fortress. Have you ever tried to help somebody that needed help and they just couldn't seem to hear you? That's because they're behind the walls of a stronghold. But it's also the word for a prison, which means this is a person who's behind prison bars. But in this case, the prison bars are imaginary. But they're just as real to that person as real physical bars. Though they are free, they sit behind bars wishing they could be like others, looking out at others, wishing they could be like them, when in fact there's nothing stopping them except a lie in their mind that has put them behind bars. And that's why the verse goes on to say, casting down what? Imaginations, the Greek word logismos. The word logismos is where we get the term for logical thinking or reasonings. Now write this down. There's two kinds of strongholds. Two kinds of strongholds. Logical and illogical. Logical and illogical. Let's begin with illogical. An illogical stronghold would be a person, for example, that is skinny who thinks they're fat. And therefore, they become bulimic. They're obsessed with their weight when, in fact, they're already dangerously thin, but in their mind, they believe that they're, they're fat. And this is a lie which is working in their head, which places their entire life in jeopardy. That is an illogical stronghold. It's illogical. This person needs to gain weight. An illogical stronghold could also be a fat person who thinks they're thin. That's a stronghold. But they can't see the truth because the stronghold's working in their head. And then there's logical strongholds. A logical stronghold would be, God, I know you've spoken to me. And God, I know that you've told me to obey you. You've told me to give this gift or you've told me to go to this part of the world to serve you. You've told me to do something. But God, I can't do that. I've got bills to pay. I can't do that. They have logic behind their reasoning and the logic enslaves them and stops their obedience. It's logical, but it's slavery. It is a logical stronghold. So there are logical strongholds. There are illogical strongholds. And when you're a really smart person, you primarily have to deal with the logical strongholds because they just make so much sense to you but you've got to break through them. And the Bible says casting down imaginations. If you look at the previous verse, it says pulling down strongholds. Then verse 5, casting down imaginations. And in both cases, the word pulling down and casting down in Greek are the same word, which means to take down, pull down, disassemble, dismember, brick by brick if necessary. And this is important because when you have a stronghold that's been in your life for a long, long time and you begin to attack it, it may not come down all at once. Sometimes you've got to be determined, I am not going to be fin finished with this thing till I walk free. And if I have to take it apart brick by brick, I'm going to pull this thing down from my mind until I'm free of this bondage. And as you continue in verse 5, we understand what the stronghold is. Every high thing that exalts itself, what? Against the knowledge of God. And here's the work of the enemy. God says, you are righteous. The enemy says, you are unrighteous. That's a lie, which is contradictory of what God says about you. God says, you are healed. The enemy says, you are not healed and you will never be healed. God says, you're blessed financially. The enemy says, you're not and you never will be. He always contradicts whatever God says. And so you have to make a decision what voice you're going to listen to. The voice you listen to will determine what you believe. Even science tells us that what our ears hear and hear and hear and hear eventually becomes what we believe. Romans 10, 17 Faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. Whatever you listen to eventually becomes what you believe. And what you believe, your faith empowers to become your reality.
So what you think is very, very important. So a moment comes when God is speaking to you and saying, you're righteous, you're healed, you're blessed. The enemy says, you're unrighteous, you're unworthy, you're sick, you'll always be sick, you'll always be depressed, your life is never going to be changed, your finances are never going to change, and you have to make a decision to shut your ear to one voice and open your ear to the other and determine you're going to hear what God says, whether you like it, whether you feel it, or whether you enjoy it or not, you're going to let God's word bombard your mind in the same way the enemy has bombarded your mind. And it will so affect your thinking that you'll begin to believe what God says. And when you begin to believe what God says, your faith will embrace it. Jesus said, whatever you believe is what you receive. As you embrace it and believe it, then God's reality, the word of God will begin to change you. You'll walk out from behind those walls and you'll break out of that prison. You'll begin to say, hey, I'm talented. Look at me. Hey, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. You begin to realize, wow. Because you shut your ear to one voice and you opened your ear to the next. But then we come to the next word. The word oppression. The word oppression in Greek is kata, duna, Steo. Compound of two words. The word kata is a preposition which means down. And the second word is a form of the word dunamis. When you put these two words together, it is an explosive power designed to denigrate you, to take you down. And in fact, it is the word for, are you ready for this? A tyrant. A tyrant. And here's what we find. If you don't get rid of that fortress in your head, the devil's aim is to move into your mind. And once he gets into your head, his job is to rule you like a tyrant, tell you what you will be, tell you what you will not be, what your marriage will be, what it will never be, whether you'll be healed, whether you won't be healed, whether you'll have money, whether you'll never have money. And from your head like a tyrant, he begins to tyrannize you. And it's amazing, but many, many believers live under the tyrannizing voice of the enemy, even though the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of them. Now, I want to give you a personal example from my life. May I? When I was growing up, I grew up in a wonderful Southern Baptist church. Oh, I loved my church. I walked the aisle, gave my life to Jesus when I was five years old. The same night I was baptized and I was so little they had to put a chair in the baptistry so I could stand on it so people in the crowd could see me in the baptistry. And I was just starting my new life with Jesus. Loved the Lord so much. But I was different from the other guys in our church. The guys in our church loved fishing. They loved hunting. They loved everything that had to do with some kind of a ball, football, basketball, volleyball, softball, and to make matters really worse, my dad was an amazing athlete. My dad was the pitcher on the church baseball team. My dad was the chief bowler on the bowling league. My dad played basketball. He played football. My dad did it all. And I just wasn't tuned to that. From the time that I was young, I loved art. I loved art. I loved music. I hated fishing. Ugh. The idea of sitting in a hot boat for hours and hours and hours was not my idea of a good time. And I can remember sitting out in that boat with my dad and daddy looking at me saying, are we having a swell time? And me thinking, there must be something really wrong with me because I do not think we're having a swell time. I hated everything to do with the ball, but my father, bless his heart, he didn't know what to do with me and he was just bound and determined to turn me into a real guy in the church. And in our church, if you were a man, you did something with a ball. So dad put me in baseball. Usually they put me in the outfield. I missed all the balls because I was picking four-leaf clovers. <sighs> then they tried to put me in basketball. Ugh. 
bunch of sweaty, stinking guys running around, throwing a ball in a room. But you know, on the way into the gym, which was at a public civic center, I walked past one place where there was a big double windows. And through those windows were people making pottery. I remember just wanting to go in there and learn how to make pottery, but I had to go in that room with all those stinky guys and throw a ball through a hoop. I did not want to be there. I wanted to be in that class where all that pottery was taking place. Well, I didn't do well at baseball, didn't do well at basketball, so Dad decided to put me in football. Ugh, what a bad idea. I still don't understand American football to this day, and I'm so glad we live in Russia where it doesn't exist. Guys knocking each other flat, breaking their bones. What is fun about that? I just couldn't connect. And even as a young man, I began to feel there was something wrong with me. Why can't you just be like everybody else? And I didn't understand. Diabolus. At a young age, the devil was already beginning to pound my mind. You're defective. There's something wrong with you. You're not like others. And because we really didn't believe in the devil or take him serious, I didn't know how to resist him. And therefore, Methodios, it was like a road was paved into my brain. And the devil regularly began to hammer my mind. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. You're defective. You're not like everybody else. Other boys were going to the football field and the baseball field, and I was going to Gilcrease Art Museum. I wanted to go watch them paint watercolors. I wanted to see the paintings. And when I had a free day and my mother would allow me, I would go to the Tulsa Symphony by myself sitting there, just a little boy, thinking, you're an absolute freak. You're the only child here. All your friends are playing baseball, and they're fishing, they're hunting, and you're down here listening to the orchestra. What's wrong with you? Pounding my mind, pounding my mind. My desires, my makeup, it was just different from others. And you know, when you have a child that is different, it's a special challenge. And you have to have wisdom to know how to raise that child and how to develop that child. And my mother tried her best and my poor daddy, bless his heart, bless his heart. He just had a son he didn't know what to do with. And he kept trying to mold me and make me to be a man to fit in the church like all the other guys. It wasn't working. I would look into the mirror every morning as a young man and a voice would speak to me. There's something wrong with you. I nearly came to hate myself when I looked into the mirror and I'm not exaggerating. Then I came into the seventh grade. In the seventh grade, I became sick and because of that, I missed one half of a school year. And during the half of the year that I was gone, I did not have a tutor, so I just sat at home. And when I finally came back to school, I was six months behind everyone else. They were talking about English and all kinds of forms of grammar. I didn't have a clue what they were talking about because nobody took time to help me catch up. And they were talking about math. I didn't understand anything they were talking about in regard to math. And every day I would sit in my seat and think, just so stupid. And I began to believe this. The enemy pounding my mind, pounding my mind. Devices, no amata, scrambling my brain, trying to create a stronghold in my head so he could move into my life and rule me like a tyrant. But at the end of the seventh grade, my teacher liked me. She said, Rick, though you have failed this class, because I like you, I'm going to pass you into the eighth grade. Well, if I didn't understand grammar and math in the seventh grade, how was I going to understand it in the eighth grade? And I walked into the eighth grade with fear and trembling and never understood a thing that they were saying, and nobody took time to help me. So the whole year, 
I failed and failed and failed and every failure was a confirmation of what I was beginning to believe about me. There was something wrong with me. Stupid, stupid. I failed. My teacher said, Rick, you failed, but I really like you. So I'm gonna pass you into the ninth grade. Well, the ninth grade was algebra. If I didn't get the seventh grade and the eighth grade, how in the world am I going to understand algebra? And when I came into algebra the first day, I took my seat in the back of the room and the algebra teacher, her name was Miss Sparks, she's in heaven now, I hope, was so old that she had been my father's algebra teacher in the same room. And I didn't realize that I had sat in my dad's desk. And she did not like my dad because 35, 40 years earlier when he was a kid, he lit up a pipe and smoked a pipe in her class. She considered him a hooligan and never let go of it. She remembered that. So when she called the roll, she went through the list. Finally, she got to the R's. She said, Ricky Renner. I said, here. She dropped her head. She wore those half glasses, moon glasses like they used to wear. They slid all the way down to the end of her nose and she looked peering across that desk. She wore stilettos. She got up out of her chair. She literally clicked around to the front of that desk, propped herself back against that desk and looked over those little glasses at me. And she said, is your father Ronald Renner? I said, yes, ma'am. That's my father. And she literally said, and I'm not making this up, stupid. Any child of Ronald Renner is stupid, and in this class, your name will be Stupid Renner. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I was assaulted. And all I did was sit in my chair. And for the rest of that school year, every time she called the roll, she called everybody else by their names. And when she came to my name, she said, stupid runner. And I raised my hand and I said, here. If I raised my hand to ask a question, she would say, what do you need, stupid? Can somebody please help, stupid? That became my name. It was the ninth grade. And as you can imagine, the other students thought that was hilarious. So guess what became my name? Everybody in the whole school began to call me stupid. I would walk down the hallways and people would say, hello, stupid. Hey, stupid, 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 stupid. And now the enemy had brought in a reinforcement to back up what he was already privately telling me. As if that's not enough, that year was the first year in our school system that they gave job placement tests. So I took a test, and the day came for me to sit down with two counselors who were going to advise me about my future education. So I sat down. I can still see them sitting there. And they said, Ricky, we need to be honest with you. We don't want to hurt your feelings, but you really don't have the intellectual ability for any kind of higher education. So we think it would be best for you to think about your future as a ditch digger or maybe somebody to lay asphalt or maybe to do telephone lines. And of course, we need people who do those things. But what I heard was you're defective. You're mentally deficient. There's something wrong with you. And now there were two professionals confirming it. Well, friends, I'm not bragging, but I'm telling you, I'm not stupid. I'm very far from stupid. And what I understand now is the enemy knew God had a call on my life and he was out to hijack me before I could get started. And if I had allowed that lie to work in my mind, I would not be standing here talking to you today. I would be digging a ditch with no hope for my life. 
because the enemy's purpose was to take me down. And the reason that I can teach on this process is because I have lived this process. Diabolus, he comes to strike the mind and strike the mind. Wiles, Methodia, he tries to pave a road, get an inroad into your mind. Noemata, devices, scramble your brain, confuse you so you no longer know what is true or what is false. Then he builds a stronghold in your head. And finally, oppression, the Greek word, which describes a tyrant who moves in and then tells you what your life is going to be. And by the time I was 14 years old, I was so hopeless. I would look into the mirror every morning. You know, I loved art. I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't know if I've ever told this. I would look into the mirror and I would think about Vincent van Gogh. Killed himself. And I remember thinking, you know, that's what I need to do. I just need to die. Because there's no hope for me. You're defective. There's nothing right about you. Nothing is right about you. And then on January the 11th, 1974, I gloriously received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It was a behold moment in my life. Wow! When the power of God came upon me and it literally broke those shackles right off of me that had held me. The baptism in the Holy Spirit transformed my life. And my friends, if you've never received it, you need to receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But I had to subject my mind to the word of God just like it had been subjected to those lies. I had to make a decision. I'm going to close my ear to what the enemy is saying. I'm going to baptize myself in the word of God until I hear it and hear it and hear it and hear nothing but the word of God. And that's what I did. Back in those days, I began to attend Kenneth Hagin meetings. I got to as many Kenneth Hagin meetings as I could. It was before there was even a rhema. I was there the night he announced there was going to be a rhema. I mean, I got to every meeting I could get to. Back in those days was full gospel businessmen meeting and Catherine Kuhlman meetings. Little Ricky Renner was going to everything he could get to because I was trying to pludge my mind under the truth and never return to a state of captivity ever again. And I walked free and I've been free ever since. And I'm telling you, if you're bound, you can be free. We had a woman come to us for counseling in Moscow. This has been years ago, and she was a schizophrenic. I don't know, maybe that's another word that's no longer right to be used. But everybody knows what a schizophrenic is. She had multiple personalities. She had been coming to church for a long time. And she came to me for help. She said, you better talk fast. Because in just a few minutes, somebody else in me is going to start talking to you. She said, it's going to be somebody else pretty quick because there's multiple people in here that take over. And I got right into her face, looked into her eyes, and I said, I want you to listen to me. Of course, this was all in Russian. I said, your life can be changed. Rather than have 10 different minds, you can be single-minded but it will require you to bend your brain to think the thoughts of God. Remember, you've got to disassemble it, if necessary, brick by brick. You've got to be determined this thing's coming down. I'm knocking this thing down. Whether it takes a day, a month, a year, or years, you're not stopping till that thing has been eliminated. And I said to this woman, if you will bend your brain to the word of God, she said, I don't know if I can do that. She said, just any moment now, something else could take over. I said, you can do this. You've got to, with who you are, you've got to make a choice. She said, I'll make my choice. I'll do my best. And that woman that was so tortured began to bend her mind to the truth. And my friends, she became a single personality. One of the greatest transformations I've ever seen in my life. Totally, radically changed because she made a choice of listening to the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Wow.
And if you understand these five words, you'll know how the devil operates in you. You'll know how the devil's trying to operate in your kids. And when your kids begin to speak bad things about themselves, don't just dismiss that and laugh it off. You need to listen. There's a voice already speaking to them at a young age. And if you have a child that is unique, and I was unique, you need to pray for special wisdom on how to manage and nurture and steward that child. I had to finally understand that it's all right to be different than others. That means I sparkle a little different than everybody else. I finally woke up and realized, hey, they can't do what I do. I have my own niche. Stepped into freedom. Do you understand the importance of what I'm teaching to you tonight? This is not theory. I'm speaking to you directly out of the revelation that I've received in my life. And if the enemy has told you there's no hope for your marriage, you need to quit listening to that. If he's told you your body cannot be healed, stop listening to that. If he's told you that you cannot lose weight, you need to stop listening to that. If he's told you that you have no talent and that your future is bad, you need to stop listening to that. You need to close your ear to that. Open your other ear to the truth because faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. Whatever you hear and believe is what's going to become your reality. And if you understand these five words, you can walk out of a lie. You can walk anybody out of a lie. You can almost identify where people are in the process when you're trying to help people that are struggling. And by the way, the devil is the devil, and this is how he works in nearly everybody's life. This is universal. This is universal. Now, I asked Pastor Mark... By the way, have you learned anything tonight? Yes. I've asked Pastor Mark if the worship team can come back and sing that same song. What's it called? If you came in here sad, you're going to leave happy. If you came in here down, you're going to leave up. That's the declaration. You see, you have to choose what you think. You've got to choose what you believe. You can make your own reality Amen. by listening to the truth. My daddy said to me, my precious daddy who's now in heaven, he said, son, he never did understand me. That's okay. He loved me. He said, son, I just don't get your life. I said, well, daddy, what do you mean? He said, you, you've just moved into a fantasy world. He said, you think a thought and it happens. He said, I've never seen anybody that's experienced such a miraculous, unlikely story. Son, I just, don't, I just don't understand. Well, that was not my original destiny. It had to be altered. It had to be changed because there was another plan to take me down. But by listening to the truth and by receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit, I received a power that caused Kent Clark to come out of the phone booth different than he went in. Oh, Praise God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 